I'm Esther Amar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women of color media panel. I'm live in Star FM studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR, Washington, D.C. We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally in Ghana and Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. Today on The Spin, we bring you part two of a special, Love with Accountability. On part two, we bring you family, faith, forgiveness in our first conversation and the script of silence in our second. Survivors of childhood sexual assault, sexual molestation and rape share their stories, their journeys as part of a call to healing, change and loving accountably. This spin explores this definition of love individually and collectively. What does it mean for childhood sexual assault? How will it change the way we love? How might it shape relationships within family, community, and society? Love with Accountability Part 2, coming up. Our contributors this week are Dr. Tamer Bryant-Davis and Luz marquez Benbao. Luz Marquez Benbao has worked on issues related to sexual assault for over 15 years. That work has taken place within a number of organizations, including the New York State Coalition Against Sexual Assault. Luz co-founded the National Organization of Sisters of Color Ending Sexual Assault. She's worked on policy initiatives to end violence against women, notably the Violence Against Women Act, known as VAWA. And Luz is a Just Beginnings Collaborative Fellow where she's focused on building a survivor network of Afro-descendantes to advance social change and movement building toward ending child sexual abuse. Luz is a black Boricua and a mama of three children. Dr. Tamer Bryant-Davis is an associate professor of psychology at Pepperdine University. She's the 2015 awardee for the California Psychological Association Distinguished Scientist Award for her research addressing trauma and oppression. She's also a past president of the Society for the Psychology of Women and a former American Psychological Association representative to the United Nations. Dr. Brian Davis is director of the Culture and Trauma Research Lab at Pepperdine University, which focuses on the cultural context of recovery from interpersonal traumas, such as child abuse, sexual assault, intimate partner abuse, racism, and human trafficking. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Thank you so much. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. Saludos. Greetings. Greetings. Love with accountability. You are two women survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Love with Accountability is a multimedia project whose purpose is to centralize survivors of sexual assault in a healing narrative to prioritize child sexual abuse, healing and justice in national dialogues and work on racial justice and gender-based violence. It's part of the Novo Foundation's Just Beginnings Fellowship and it examines accountability as a powerful and necessary form of love needed to address child sexual abuse. It also examines how the silence in families and communities around child sexual abuse plays a direct role in creating a culture of sexual violence in all other institutions, religious, academic, activist, political, and professional. 
child sexual abuse is a global phenomenon. From London to Ghana to India to South Africa to New York to Chicago to Detroit to Latin America to Nigeria, no corner of the world has escaped this crime of crimes. What makes it more complicated is the intimate relationship of this violence. Abusers are known. They are often loved and often within family, by blood, by trust, by intimacy. Those that take care of you, that you look up to, that you are entrusted to. It is that complication that makes healing harder. Love with Accountability is the vision of filmmaker, activist, and childhood sexual abuse survivor and advocate, Aisha Shahida Simmons. It's a series of written pieces by survivors of childhood sexual assault. 29 contributors over a 10-day period had their pieces published in The Feminist Wire. And each contributor wrote about an aspect of their sexual assault and what loving accountably might look like for them. Here Aisha explains why she created it. There's so much silence around sexual violence. And what I've learned is that child sexual abuse is for many victim survivors a precursor to violence in adulthood. And ending violence in our society, it really starts with ending child sexual abuse. And ending child sexual abuse starts in the family, however we define family, those people who we entrust our children to. The majority of us are taught from birth that regardless of any transgression we may experience at the hands of a family member, we must protect the family at all costs. And love is all too often used as a weapon against survivors of abuse and similarly Bystander guilt is a painful, powerful force that stands in the way of our collective ability to end violence in our families. So for me, I really wanted to look at how can we address this global pandemic? How do we hold people accountable? How can we begin to view accountability as a radical form of love? Because usually when we break silence around child sexual abuse or adult rape, it is viewed as a betrayal to the community, to the family. And what I'm pushing and challenging and encouraging all of us to think about is that accountability is a form of love. Because as long as we are silent, we are going to allow unspeakable crimes to continue to happen. Silence within family, society, community. In this second part of Love with Accountability, we talk family, faith, and forgiveness with Luz Marquez Benbao. Now, Luz is a Boricua, an Afro-Latina descendante. And according to the National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey of 2010, one in seven Latinas experience rape at some point in their lives. Luce, if you can please read your first excerpt for me. I am one of the seven. I, like many incest survivors, struggle with family and guilt because I never wanted to let go of my family. Most of my thoughts were stuck on the whys and what ifs. As of forgiving myself, this is a lifelong process. Forgiveness is complicated by all of the societal sanction victim blaming that occurs on a daily basis. I did forgive myself for thinking that these horrific violations happened to me because in my family, I was La Prieta, the dark one. You say that you were La Prieta, the dark one. So I wonder if you can break down and explain for us what that means exactly. I should also say that that literally was a nickname of mine in my family as well. In many Latino families, we are descendants of Africa. And so we have a saying, De donde es tu abuela? Where's your grandmother from? And that saying really refers to and validates the reality that we are descendants of Africans. And so hence, our family's gene pool looks physically, phenotype, represents that history. 
of the transatlantic slave trade and the forced breeding that occurred. And so I am a sibling of four, a four siblings. I'm the only girl, and I'm also the only dark-skinned black child in my family, which hence adds to the saying, where is your grandmother from? And so no matter what my mom looks like, nor my father, the gene is strong, right? <laughs> and so it comes out in our children, and I am a descendant, a Afrodescendente, which really raises an issue of colorism amongst us as Latinos in terms of how we define beauty, how we define privilege, how we define who we are. And so La Prieta, which I was often referred to, was a way for me to, and this is a term of endearment, I should say, and I say that sarcastically. While I certainly celebrate my African heritage, I also understood that there is a lot of internal racism that has occurred amongst us as Latinos in the, of the Caribbean and of Latin America, that it causes us to no longer need the white man to sort of segregate us because we do that to ourselves. Reading your piece, you say you were sexually abused by your older brother, who was more than six years older than you, and that you were first abused at just seven years old, and your mother did not believe you when the abuse came through. And I wonder if you could just talk us through what happened within your family environment. My mom was a single parent, and as the only girl, she believed that if I was always kept in the presence of my brothers, that I would be protected. There was this idea that I had something that folks wanted, unbeknownst to me, because no one ever told me what that was. I certainly found out at a very early age, and I should clarify that Seven is the earliest memory that I remember because it is when my two other brothers who are younger than my oldest, who are in the middle between my oldest brother and myself, were the ones who discovered what was occurring and basically reacted very violently towards my brother. And one of them took me aside and began to yell at me. And it was at that moment that I knew that something we were doing, that what we were doing was wrong. I had no idea that it was wrong before then. I thought it was playtime with my older brother. And so there began an understanding at a very early age that what I must have must be this and that someone would, would want it. And so it isn't until I'm 26 that I disclose to my family. And so my brothers who have protected me after that event, after stopping it that day, never talked to me again afterwards about that event with my oldest brother. And then when I'm 26, one of my brothers passes away. And my oldest brother, who is diagnosed with schizophrenia, is hospitalized and is walking um, catonically. And, and one of my siblings and I go visit him, and it is there that I unleash years of pain. And I call him out. And my second brother, who was present, couldn't believe that I had remembered that because, as he says, I was so young. And we, him and I begin to talk about it. But my brother, who is my abuser, we don't engage in conversation after that. And that is when I have the strength to tell my mom. And my mom's response is for me to pray and ask for forgiveness. And that was really painful in terms of just really wanting her to believe me. And even though my second brother was there to validate it, it didn't matter that if I prayed that somehow that will do away with my pain and that I still needed to be his sister and to be loyal to, to the family. Wow. God, my whole heart just crunched in 
hearing you say that. It's something you, you write in your piece where you say that society teaches girls through our families that through behavior we can somehow avoid being abused. And what that does, of course, is it obviously makes girls guilty of what then happens. And then it absolves men and boys of any kind of emotional or, or, or sexual responsibility. Lou, I wonder if you could just read that second piece, which talks a bit about your mother. Despite doing everything my mom told me to do, including wearing shorts under my skirts, dresses, not sitting on any men's laps, never be alone in the company of a stranger, and to pray, I was still sexually abused. I wonder who should pay for the cause of my sexual trauma at the early age of seven. Dr. Tamer, I wonder if you could put that in some kind of societal context, that idea that somehow if girls just act a particular way, they can somehow avoid abuse, thereby making them solely responsible either for the avoidance and therefore responsible if it actually happens. Absolutely. It's very problematic. And I just want to first start by appreciating your courage in sharing this story and the pain that comes up when it was met with silence and with the shame and guilt being placed on you and told to just shift into prayer and act like nothing happened. And I think what we often do is hope that children won't remember, or we hope that children aren't thinking about it, and so we retreat into silence. But prior to the abuse, I think that these messages that we give girls do, in fact, make them responsible for the behavior of other children and the behavior of adults. And so we have to really recognize the prevention of sexual abuse should not be on the shoulders of potential victims, but of potential perpetrators. And so when is the last time that a parent said to a child, keep your hands to yourself? Do not put your sexual body parts on another child. Do not show yourself to another child. When was the last time that we had that conversation? Instead, what we do is put all of the weight of prevention on potential victims. And so what we say in psychology is there are things that potential victims can do to perhaps reduce their risk, but the ultimate responsibility is on offenders. They are the ones who are choosing to do the behavior. And so we miss out on the important work that we can do to retreat into putting the blame and responsibility on those who are most vulnerable. Absolutely. And thank you so much, Dr. Tamer, for saying that. Thank you. I really do. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. How long did the abuse go on for in terms of your memory, Luce? You say it's seven was your earliest memory. How long before your brothers witnessed and then intervened? It was when I was seven. That's the intervention that I remember. But like I said, I really thought it was playtime. And so I often think back. And this is, you know, uncovering these things when you're so young is a lifelong journey. And so un- like the brain <laughs> is amazing. And I'm sure, you know, Dr. Tema and others can sort of speak to that and how we store and hoard pieces that are too horrific to do with. But I do recall always having a doll on my side and looking up in the sky or the ceiling of the room as he sexually abused me. But I don't recall anything past being seven, but that is literally the interruption of my brothers and the yelling and the fighting. And then one of my brothers pulling me aside. In other words, they split up. One brother took my abuser and one brother took me and yelled at me. And when he realized I didn't understand what was going on, 
was when he began to talk to me about my body and began to talk to me about the rights to my body and everything that you just heard Dr. Tema speak to. One of my brothers was able to do for me, and actually he was able to do that for me throughout my adolescent life. He was a really gift in my life in terms of being really supportive and really talking to me. And I, you know, I often laugh that I learned how to be a woman from one of my brothers while I also learned how painful it can be as well from one of my other brothers. And so that's as far as I could remember. And then moving forwardly, by the time I'm 12, I molested by my mom's boyfriend. And then by the time I am 14, I am raped by a family friend as well. I'm so sorry that this happened to you. And I really just honor the the space and your choice to speak that out loud for so many others who walked what you walked and may or may not speak. So I just want to honor you and appreciate that initially and just echo what Dr. Tamer said in terms of your courage. You say in your piece that the only way you could stop from harming either yourself or from committing suicide was to use drugs. And you talk about your anger towards your oldest brother and your mother's boyfriend and your mother. So first of all, can you talk to us a bit about whether there was there a suicide attempt or you were feeling suicidal? And how did the manifestation of the anger come through? I've always been angry. I've sort of always held on to anger and always referred to it as this little angry bull child. <laughs> you know, um, my criada is, is, is sort of the, the term that we use in Spanish. As I try to, as a child, navigate through mothering myself and, and coping. And just as I'm turning about 10 years old, I start to experiment with with pot, which is obviously a sort of introductory to, to all, all other types of drugs. And then by the time I am 16 or 17, and this is during the crack era, and I'm, I should let folks know that I'm born and raised in Harlem. I am Boricua, Afro-Boricua de Puerto Rico, but I am born and raised in Harlem. I am a first-generation Afro-Boricua. So to give context to that, this is just in the beginning of the crack era. And so Angel Dust was just before the crack era, and it was something that I often engaged in as well, as well as psychotropics and all types of ways that I could help myself be happy. Because I was living a dual life. My family was very Catholic. When I was, initially, we were very much within the African tradition space. And then when we moved here to the States and I was born, there was a little bit of African tradition celebrated in our family. And then quickly we assimilated and became Catholic. And so I certainly grew up in the, the Catholic church. I was a, the Saturday secretary. And then by night I was what statistically would be considered the inner city, hard, you know, ghetto kid who was getting high and, and, and definitely living a very risky life, running away from home several times. You know, I showed every flag that somebody would have said something happened, but no one ever did that. In, in fact, it, it was always labeled as because I was poor, because I was black, because I was Puerto Rican, because I was the daughter of a single mom, that that is why I was exhibiting these negative coping mechanisms. And I struggle to say negative because I actually think they kept me alive. Because had I not done drugs, I would have killed myself sooner. And so there's this concept about killing yourself slowly or killing yourself quickly. And so had I not done drugs, I would not be here today. 
yeah. And, and, and so, so with that said, it was a way for me to exist and a really difficult reality. Dr. Tamer, can you put that into some context, just negotiating surviving the sexual violence and just what your, you know, your body is really reaching for life, actually, even in terms of taking drugs and just break that down for us. It's so important that those who are survivors look back at their experience and identify the ways that they've survived. And there's a saying that the ways we've survived are not always beautiful, but we made it. And mm-hmm. the first kind of beautiful strategy is something that you mentioned is something that in psychology we call dissociation. So when you were laying there during the abuse and kind of like daydreaming or looking up at the sky or the ceiling, it's a resource that the human mind gives us that when I can't physically get away, I can mentally go someplace else. And so in the moment, as you can imagine, as this violation is happening, to be able to mentally go someplace else is a powerful gift that you give yourself. The challenge becomes when the abuse has happened multiple times, then that becomes our go-to strategy, which is like mentally escaping. And that's exactly what happens with the drugs or the substances is I can't figure out how to get out of this circumstance So I have to create this strategy for myself in the moment. And so one of the things I talk about with other survivors is helping us move from survival mode to thriving. So when I'm dissociating or daydreaming, when I'm coping by using drugs, all of that is allowing me to survive and then trying to figure out how do I transition so I don't live my whole life just surviving. And Dr. Maya Angelou, the poet, has this quote where she says, surviving is necessary, but thriving is elegant. And that is the piece. It's like, how do I get out of just making it to actually being who I'm on the planet to be? Mm. Mm. I hear that. I hear that. And Luce, you say you've been drug-free for the past 31 years, but you continue to struggle with the anger piece and that you know that it's best or healthier for you and your kids to cut off from your family completely, but you can't entirely disengage from familial ties. So just walk us through how that manifests for you when you have to be around family. And isn't that the hardest part? Because your ties, the ties of blood do something to how you move through the world. So it's never just a cutoff, which is how it's described. I want to say thank you to Aisha Simmons, Shaida Simmons for having the foresight to think about love with accountability because I had not thought about who's accountable to me. I never thought about that. I mean, certainly I've been in therapy for, for over 15 years and I've been asked that and I've always sort of deflected the question. And I really struggled with that in, in writing this and then really thinking about how I really did save myself in a huge way. And so at the age of around 19, my oldest brother's returning home. He had left literally around the same time that I'm seven. And he got an ABC scholarship to go away to school. He was really smart and, and was away. And he went from middle school to boarding school to college. And so he was no longer necessarily in my home. Yet I still did all of the drugs and I still did a lot of the coping mechanisms to keep myself alive. And then at the age of 19, we get one. My mom says, oh, he's coming home after all these years, thank God. And she's celebrating and, and getting the house ready. And I say to one of my brothers who, who protected me, I, I need to get out of here. I need to go to college. And part of my story is that I'm also a truant, right? So instead of going to high school, 
I was going to the beach. I was going to the movies. I was going everywhere except for there. And so in my senior year of high school, I buckled down. I began to get away from folks that I typically do drugs with. I, like, literally, staunchly become, like, angry. And I, like, I cannot be with you and get away. And I work day and night. I go to all of my teachers. I beg them profusely about what it is that I need to do. And I literally work so hard that I end up taking the ACTs, which is a test you have to take in order to go to college, on the very last day. And my brother helps so that I am able to go to the same college he goes to. And I get accepted. And I leave. I literally pack up whatever little belongings I have, and I leave. And I had run away before, but this time I knew they couldn't find me because I knew I was allowed to go to college and that I could leave. And my mom certainly felt as if I was leaving her and never returning. And so I always held that guilt of being sort of the loyal daughter and what that meant. But once I left Harlem, I was able to start to look at rebuilding my life and really start to get away from drugs, drinking, anything that had to do with anything that looked or was smelled like or was anything like the life that I was living, I got away from. Unfortunately, I didn't get to finish college, but I was able to rebuild my life and seek counseling at the age of 26 when I enter the work to end violence against women and the brain Dr. Temma could probably break this down further, is telling me that I don't know anything about this issue of sexual violence and that I need to learn. And it is there that I begin to go back to disassociating. And I begin to really struggle with my past and all that it meant. And I'm also a mom at the same time. And so that is how I have maintained myself to be drug-free. It isn't until about maybe five or six years ago that I start to drink wine and watch myself but I am by no means at all anything at all like what my younger years were like. And you say in your piece, quote, um, frankly, I need to navigate these dynamics because culturally familial ties are very important for me, that it is too painful to not have them, my mother, my brother, in my life. Who is accountable for these contradictions? Um, Dr. Tamer, talk about negotiating these family dynamics. It is so hard. Why is it so, so hard? Well, a big piece of what makes it difficult is the lack of true acknowledgement. And I do want to acknowledge and give thanks in your story for the presence of your brother who was willing to talk with you, not just the one time, but consistently over the years. But often what happens is people are not talking about it and they're just trying to pretend that it didn't happen. And that's work. It's draining, draining, exhausting work to sit there around the table pretending that nothing happened. And so then we can act out in different ways and people respond to our quote-unquote bad attitude or our negativity or us being sensitive. And then that becomes the center of the issue instead of the source of what people are actually upset about. And so I think it's really important for survivors who want to stay in touch with their families to figure out what those boundaries look like. So it may mean I still want to go spend time, but I don't have to sit there all day or I don't have to live with them once I'm an adult. And so figuring out how much is okay for me. And at this point now, I need to walk away before it gets to a worse place because it can be a very toxic environment. Oh, it is. It is a very toxic environment. And I start to do that as early as 19. 
And then I'm guilt-ridden because I didn't go home for two years after my freshman year. And then after I could no longer handle college because of just intermittent focus and memories, I still refuse to go home and I keep myself safe and keep myself abreast. Um, But I still connect to family. And it isn't until about 10 years ago that I began to establish boundaries. I am a mother of three. I in no way have allowed my children to stay beyond the age of five. Up until then, I did. And then it was, it was horror. It was, it was really difficult. And no one could even understand what the difficulty was. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't articulate it because I didn't want to articulate what the words were because I, too, lived in that silence in order to be able to exist and mm-hmm. to be able for them to exist. And it isn't until one day my daughter calls me and says, I believe that left us at the front of the market and went and did groceries. And it was at that moment that I said, this is enough. I can't do this anymore. And if you want to see my kids, you have to come upstate and you have to visit us. And that he is not allowed in my car and in my house and around my kids alone. And I begin to talk to my other brother who also has children and his wife. And we begin to create a system by which allows me to exist as well as allows us to still be with family. But as I heal, as, as I walk in my journey, even that continues to be really uncomfortable. And literally, I'm writing this piece for Love with Accountability, and I literally begin to fall apart in terms of how much more work I still need to do because I never asked for my family to be accountable to me in any way. And what does that mean for me as a mom, and how do I break that cycle for my kids? And so that's been much of what I've been doing for the last 10 years. I'm Luce Mike Bimbo. You're listening to Love with Accountability Special Part 2 on The Spend. For Luce uh, Boricua, ultimately she's telling the world, my body is my own. It's mine. Mi cuerpo es mío. Conocer mi alma, cansada del silencio y sentirme aislada, cansada de sentir miedo hasta en mi propia casa. No quise maquillarme las heridas en la cara, no quise aceptar llamadas ni disculpas vanas. No quiero más heridas, quiero luchar por mi vida. Love with accountability reveals as hard as it can be sometimes, we have to tell family that they are not allowed, that they are uninvited.
So that was part two of Love with Accountability, our second special on healing and justice by survivors of childhood sexual violence. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly international all-women-of-color podcast. I'm your host, Esther Armour. Our contributors this week are Luz Marquez Benbao and Dr. Tamer Bryant-Davis. They join me via NPR Washington, D.C. This spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in Star FM studios in Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, Texas, South Carolina, Georgia, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa, in Ghana on Star FM 103.5, and in Lagos on WFM 91.7. And we're online. Subscribe to The Spin One on SoundCloud or iTunes. Time for the second conversation of part two of Love with Accountability on The Spin. The script of silence. Dr. Tamer Brian Davis is a childhood sexual abuse survivor, an artist, a reverend, a clinical psychologist, an academic. In her piece for Love with Accountability called Our Silence Will Not Save Us, Dr. Tamer begins with a powerful poem. Listen. Molestation gets buried in the rib cages of children, the pelvic bones of children, the hearts, lungs, and memories of children. These children, we children, grow up, and from the vantage point of strangers, we may look like sturdy oak trees. But those who dare to look closely see the sores on our bark experience the tangled roots of our emotions, witness the disconnected gaps in our branches, but most don't look, retreating habitually to the averted gaze of eyes shut, refusing to bear witness, willing our children to stand under the weight, celebrating those who manage to soar despite the weight on our wings. We directly and indirectly give our children the script of silence. No one, after all, wants to hear about ghosts that come in the night, often sharing our same last name. No one wants to think about the intrusions on toddlers, the fingers, or the hellish hot breath whispers, the violation of bodies still young enough to carry lunchboxes and backpacks, No one wants to sit with the whole truth of the dismantling of adolescence. Those left sobbing in the fetal position, limping back to home room, shallow breath. As intruders descend upon us, it's easier to talk about God or report cards or television shows or what's for dinner or even problems facing the black community. Anything else is really more palatable than shh. Our silence does not save us and definitely does not heal us. But even with the demand for silence, the violation speaks, often in riddles. The violation discovers the code of nonverbal communication. The abuse screams in the muffled voice of depression, anxiety, PTSD, eating disorders, anger, panic attacks, addiction, dissociation, suicidality, ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder. Translated in our communities with other labels like bad attitude, too sensitive, drama queen, troubled, zapping out, spacing out, 
irritating, troublemaker, bad hygiene, forgetful, too grown for her good, shy, secretive, quiet, weird, emotional, cold, moody, off. Forgetting they told us with words and deeds to hush, but we need space to think, feel, speak, connect, process, restore. We need seeing eyes, listening ears, open hearts. The silence strangles us again, again, and again. Yet often those who encourage silence would in most cases say they love us. It's the kind of love that walks on eggshells around sexual violence. The kind of love that would defend us against the sting of racism or the mistreatment by a teacher, stranger, or in some cases, a bully. But when a vagina, penis, anus, breasts are involved, our loved ones run out of words cloaking themselves in silence or uncomfortable laughter. After all, most grew up in houses where those words were neither uttered nor alluded to, especially in relationship to children. They were not given the vocabulary for this test, so they leave their paper blank. Putting roof overhead, food on the table, God in your heart, goals in your mind, and this, my sisters and brothers, is love. But this silenced love does not save us when the vultures have come to eat up our flesh, desecrating our temples, leaving four-year-olds, ten-year-olds, fifteen-year-olds to gather the sharp edges of shattered pieces of themselves alone. Loved ones think silence is a gift, hoping children will forget, not dwell on it, and not focus on it. If we don't speak it, we can falsely believe that we have erased it, but it remains busting out of the seams of our souls. I don't own just a new But it won't be all right, not if we stay silent. And Dr. Tamer, in your piece, you describe this silent love as, quote, not just a gift we give our loved ones who are abusers, but a gift we give ourselves. Just explain what you mean for us, this silence that is a gift for both our loved ones, the abusers, and a gift for ourselves. The silence is a gift to abusers because it gives them freedom and power to continue to operate. Often perpetrators start off doing something small, we call it grooming, and then they watch to see the reaction and then the abuse escalates to more and more in terms of frequency and also what actually is occurring. And once they get the signal 
that no one is going to intervene, that people are going to continue to act like it's not happening, that gives them a free pass, that gives them permission, and they have access. Most of the time, these are people who are in our homes. And so it's a tangled, tainted gift to abusers because it allows them to continue to abuse. Dr. Judith Herman, a psychiatrist who wrote the book Trauma and Recovery, says it's easy to side with perpetrators. All they require is our silence. And it's so true because if I'm going to side with the person who's being violated, I'm going to have to rally myself. I'm going to have to speak. I'm going to have to fight. I'm going to have to be watchful. I'm going to have to intervene versus if I can just say nothing and nothing is always easier than something, then I automatically am siding with the offender. Luce, when you hear that, that just fits so powerfully into what you spoke about in part one, right? Yeah, it's really tough because it really is the gift that I gave to my family. And it isn't until 10 years ago, and I'm 50 now, that I began to try to figure out how to give a gift to myself so that I break the cycle for my kids. It's this burden of being a different mom, of wanting to break the cycle that I began to talk more loudly about my survivorhood and and what was done to me. But this poem is, I mean, there's so much that resonates with me around the kind of love that walks on eggshells around sexual violence. That is so true. And that is so true for many of us. Yeah. And I do want to say in terms of survivors, quote unquote, choosing silence, children are wise. And often they read circumstances and they read people to know who will be receptive and who won't. And so sometimes we blame children for not talking about it more, but you read your environment and knew my voice in this is not getting me anything. It's not going to get me anything. And so then it becomes the retreat into silence. So I would just encourage family members, if this comes out after many months or years or what have you, instead of getting upset with the victim for why they they didn't say something or why they didn't say more, to think about, is there a way that we operate in this family that has given them the message that this was not a safe thing to say? And Dr. Tamer, you say in your piece, quote, that abuse thrives in silence and secrecy, that denial by family, community members, teachers, social workers, and judges are the wind beneath the wings of predators. And while children are often silent as a result of shock, fear, confusion, and shame, what keeps non-abusing adults silent? Because I hear you, Luz, talk about the silence that you felt you gifted your family. But I also hear Dr. Tamer saying that what we really want to focus on is those non-abusing adults. What is it that keeps them silent so that we don't, as a society, continue to put the entire weight on the children, on the babies, to do this, this work that is the work of adults? crazy. And I think there's the emotional piece of people not feeling comfortable or not wanting to make someone uncomfortable. And because it's in some ways easier to ignore the discomfort of a child than to confront an adult. And so for our own emotional well-being, sometimes we select the silence or are afraid of the confrontation. I should also name that sometimes people are financially dependent on the abuser, and so then they don't want the abuser to go away. Within the United States, there is a distrust 
of the criminal justice system. And so that also keeps some people silent. And so they'll say, well, I don't want to report this to the authorities because I don't want this person to be incarcerated. And so then they're silent on that. And then the disbelief is another piece. If, if I don't believe it, I don't have to do anything. And so even when the evidence is clear, it's staring in our faces, people can retreat to disbelief. And then there's also the, that moment when God gets put into the equation. And, and you write, Dr. Tamer, in your piece, quote, we often believe that the godly response is to love them unconditionally. We want to believe it was just a mistake, a case of bad judgment, a response to stress, a regretful act, unquote. And Luce, you said in, your, in the first part that your mother said that you should forgive your brother and pray. Dr. Tamer, talk about that, this idea that you put it in prayer, you put the abuse in prayer, and somehow it will no longer be, or it is the route to deal with it or heal from it. The story that comes to mind from a Christian perspective is there's a story in the Bible where a group of men want to stone a woman. And Jesus intervened for this woman not to be stoned by these powerful men. And then he releases them and they go on their way and they're, you know, they're free to go. They're not penalized, but he stopped what they were going to do. And I think what we often want to jump to is not condemning, quote unquote, or not judging people, but they still have the rocks in their hands. And so they're still stoning people. So if we do not intervene, if we don't stop the abuse and speak out against it and say, this is not okay, then we actually are not being Christ-like. We're actually sitting in silence while the woman gets stoned to death. And to be Christ-like, to pursue God, necessitates my voice and necessitates my action. And, you know, there's another scripture that faith without works is dead. And so we want the faith part of, God, I trust you to handle it. But God is saying, I'm doing my part in the spirit realm, but you have some flesh to put on it. What's your part in it? Where are your works? What are you willing to do for righteousness? What are you willing to do for justice? What are you willing to do for the safety of those who you are charged to care for? And Luce, you talk about being raised in a strictly Catholic and religious environment, but there was also some African tradition and African traditional faith as well. Just talk a bit about how did the faith piece manifest in terms of your mother's response and how did it impact your relationship to faith? Oh my God, it impacted immensely. I was raised within a spiritual reality as, as a little girl and I remember the strength that I got from practicing our African traditions and from, from really celebrating who we were as women and who we were as African people and, and feeling so validated by that. When I was in a home that was already devaluing me based on the fact that I was a black one and then this experience with my brother. But then, you know, there's a process of those of us who migrate or immigrate to different countries and my mom was really struggling with assimilating. And so she really, really bought into this doctrine that anything that was not Catholic Christianity was was bad and was seen as, as, as voodoo and it was seen, seen as, as, as just a really horrible thing that should not be celebrated. And, and she really believed, I mean, I chuckled when I heard Dr. Thomas said, you know, where's your work? Because I would often say to her in a very bold way, you can't just pray everything. We got to figure something out. Mm-hmm. One of the pieces that I didn't share about my story is the brother who walks me through my life and teaches me about womanhood has muscular dystrophy. And for his entire life, 
she made it a point that he also needed to pray because if he really believed in God, then he would walk. I mean, this is a part of what Christianity has done to us as a people, where it really has, we bought into this construct that if we believe it's by faith, then therefore we should overcome, and, and that there is nothing else that we should do that calls on doing any other type of work. And it was a hard, hard, hard reality. And so I don't go to church. <laughs> I see church in myself. I see spirituality in myself. I've raised my kids to reconnect to our African traditions. I use a lot of aromatherapies, which is part of my spirituality, a lot of music, a lot of dance. And that has actually helped me to deal with some of my own personal anger. And so today, the way that I connect to a higher being and to myself is to know that we each are in the image of, of, of a higher being and that it is deeply rooted in the trees and in the land and in everything that is around us that gives us abundance. And so that's how I live today. I want to also ask about what I call the legacy of the untreated trauma in terms of the childhood sexual abuse. Something that Dr. Gwendolyn Simmons said in part one last week when her daughter Aisha disclosed to her, one of the things she said and she wrote about in her piece, A Mother's Lament, was she couldn't understand why her daughter couldn't, quote unquote, just get over it. There's the idea that once Aisha had told her what happened, that that's the end of the story. It's the end of the conversation. In Aisha's case, her mother did eventually believe her. And so for her, that becomes the end of the conversation. And she talks about even having a political understanding and a political consciousness that was still how she saw, you know, that environment. And Dr. Tame, I wonder if you could talk a bit about that, that the insidiousness of childhood sexual abuse is the, the legacy even beyond once it's stopped. So the idea that once it's stopped, therefore everything is fine and the child to whom the abuse was done that should be now, you know, everything's all good, back to school, back to normality, back to life. Like, what's up? Why are you still, quote unquote, acting out? And what that is about and how that also impacts actually healing or not healing, actually. Healing is a process. And what happens for those who are quick to condemn that you're not over it yet, often they are talking from a place where they were never allowed space to heal. So they don't even really understand the concept when they look back over their lives, they had multiple traumas, violence, abuse, and no one ever offered them the space really to acknowledge and sit with what they feel and to work through it. And the other reason why I think sometimes we miss recognizing that it's a process is we can equate the silence about it for healing. We can mistake silence for healing. And I will say in the beginning part of my process, I mistook busyness for healing. And so you can get busy and get very good grades and get busy and do a lot of things that from the outside look amazing, but inside the brokenness is still there. And so if we only hold up these models of busyness, we'll say, why don't you act like this person? Why don't you pull it together like this person? This person had a hard life, and look at them. They're so productive. But if you peel underneath the surface of the productivity, you'll see the brokenness. Sometimes when you look at their relationships, you'll see the brokenness. When you look at how they treat themselves, you'll see the brokenness peeking out. And so for us not to mistake 
functioning or busy or the outward appearance of successful as having really been restored or healed, but really giving. And even if I didn't get it, let's say you're a parent, a grandparent, and in your life, when you experienced it, you just had to keep moving forward to acknowledge to yourself that even though somehow you figured out how to do that, that was not really healthy. And so to say, with my child, I'm going to do it differently. So powerful. So powerful. So I want to ask the closing question now on loving accountably. To lose, first of all, you, you say the following in your piece, and I quote, in the name of radical love, I need my black diasporic brothers to take responsibility to tackle the issue of toxic masculinity and the over-sexualization of our children, of girls, women, and to mentor young brothers. I need for brothers to do this organizing work with the same rigorous conviction that is taken against other issues to hold white America accountable. Who is accountable to black, Latinx, Afro-descendante girls and women? So then writing that and saying those words, and as you're walking through this process, what does loving accountably look like for you, Luce? Loving accountably to me looks like that I'm not walking on eggshells around the men in my life, that I am not accused of throwing my gender in their face, and that they take up the fight against sexism and misogyny in, with the same amount of strength as they take up race issues. I have two adult children. One is a girl, one is a boy. I've had to have the same type of similar discussion with them about how the world will see them, whether it is by the cops, or whether it is from my own brothers, not just sibling brothers, but our brothers in the struggle as Black people. And I've had to have this conversation with them, and, and I struggle with it because I also don't want to put that weight on their shoulders. But that through my project of building sisterhood and brotherhood, I need us to come together and figure out how do we take this on it can no longer just be something that we as black women carry on our shoulders by ourselves while also keeping black men safe at the same time. Dr. Tamer, you say in your piece, and I quote, as a family, community and society, we have to go beyond hoping our loved ones who have committed abuse will change. We have to choose to love them enough to wade into the difficult waters for the safety of our children. There is an African proverb which says, when you pray, Move your feet. Our children's lives, bodies, minds, hearts, and spirits matter. Our faith in abusive loved ones without the work of accountability leaves us all unsaved. So writing that, what does loving accountably look like or mean to you? Love with accountability means that I love you enough to tell you the truth. And I love you enough to intervene when you're doing something that is out of order, that I love you enough to believe that you may be a perpetrator, but I'm going to hold you to a higher standard of responsibility. And I'm not going to make other people, particularly children, responsible for your behavior. I love you enough to see all of you, your good and your bad. And so there are some good qualities you may have, but a part of who you have been through your behavior is an offender, is an abuser, is a perpetrator. And I love you enough to see that and to deal with it. Love with accountability. People of the world of African descent, creating a path for a better way of life, creating a soundtrack of justice. 
a nation moving to a rhythm of loving accountably. doesn't want a better way of life. That's your hour. Thank you to Luz Marquez Benbao and Dr. Tamer Bryant Davis. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh my God. Thank you as well. Thank you both. I want to hear myself. <laughs> Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor David McKeever, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. So that was part two of Love with Accountability a multimedia project, the vision of Aisha Shahida Simmons and the second of The Spin's specials. Subscribe to The Spin One on iTunes or SoundCloud. The Spin, your hour of talk where smart is also and always global, healing and sexy. I'm your host. Esther Armour. People owe me apology, intellectual property, stealing, stolen, commodity, souls, control, and robbery, soul, lack of commodity, clones, copycats, bother me, mine on my hairs, follow me, honestly, honestly, all these jokers economy, puppets with no autonomy, yup, it's fooling the economy. I see you looking, but you better take it easy, tell your goons that they better take it easy, here comes the rocket launcher, take it easy, take it easy, you better take it easy, too much ex-mommy, take it easy, good with the sex you be like, take it easy. You moving bricks, but you better take it easy. Here's a tip, you too flash. I don't tip twice, but your best friend he DT. And that dog sniffing the bag ain't lassie. And I ain't rhyme in a minute, but y'all ain't catch up. And I ain't blood. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.